Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day to y'all. I want to welcome you. If you're visiting with us, we are uh, in a series through the New Testament book known as the Acts of the Apostles under the title Turning the World Upside Down. Our title today is Providence, Power, and Peace. We're in Acts 28, 7 through 10. I want to just remind you of what's coming in the remainder of the summer. Um, I've been asking you if you have a question you'd like answered from God's Word. I'll build a sermon in response to that question. And um, I've received some. I've actually received several, but I'm still receiving them. And if you have uh, a question that you'd like to submit, you can put that on your Next Steps card, drop it in the offering box, or you can email it to me at jim at lpcoli.com. I would be happy to receive that and add your question to the mix. And then in the fall, somewhere in the latter part of September, I haven't established the exact date just yet, but we will begin a series through the book of Revelation, uh, which I'm excited about. I've never um, preached a series through Revelation. I've studied it and I've never taught it, so I'm excited to do that. Uh, it'll be new for me and hopefully new for you, and uh, we'll, we'll learn a lot together. Would you stand with me and let's read our text this morning, just four verses, Acts 28, 7 through 10. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. This is God's Word. You may be seated. I want to encourage you to take notes this morning. Um, I realized uh, after the first hour that I should have said that for, uh, to them. Um, but um, this is going to be a, a little bit more highly theological sermon than than normal. Um, always try to be biblical, but we're going to get into some theological concepts uh, today, and I, I hope that you'll take some notes. Last week, we saw that Paul, along with his friends Aristarchus and Luke, um, remember Aristarchus was from Asia, uh, Luke was uh, Paul's uh, friend and accompanied him on many of his missionary journeys. Luke is all actually the guy who wrote the book of the Acts of the Apostles. He also um, wrote the gospel that bears his name, the gospel according to Luke. But Paul, along with those guys and 273 others, were shipwrecked uh, on the island of Malta after 14 days of being adrift uh, in, a, in the midst of a hurricane on the Mediterranean. Something we made note of was was the very warm welcome that they received from the natives of the island who, in a show of compassion, came down to the beach, uh, built a fire, and ministered to their needs uh, in the rain and wind of a stormy October morning as they made their way from the broken-up ship to the beach. And here in verse 7, that warm welcome is extended even further as uh, the chief man of the island, the, in Greek, the protos, uh, a man named Publius also received them enthusiastically. He received them with an open heart into his home, showed them every courtesy. You'll notice that Publius is a Roman name. It means what it sounds like. It means a, a man of the public, a man of the people. Uh, may have been a, um, a nickname because he was a public servant. Um, clearly a wealthy man. He was a landowner. It's likely that the designation protos or first man is an indication that uh, Publius was the appointed Roman governor of the island of Malta and probably spoke both Latin and Greek, unlike the islanders whose language Luke says they did not understand and so referred to them as barbarians. Luke tells us in the latter part of verse 7 that Publius hosted them for a period of three days. Uh, whether he accommodated all 276 of them uh, or just a select few, we're not told. But verse 11 indicates that they spent three months on that island. Uh, 
where did they all stay during those three months? And I think the answer is presumably in the homes of the islanders. I don't imagine there was a Hilton, you know, in, in that area. Um, so this was an incredible display of generosity and of hospitality toward these castaways who had lost virtually everything to the sea. There's a reminder here, I think, of what Jesus taught his disciples in Luke 10 as they sent, as he sent 72 of them out in pairs two by two, to proclaim the kingdom of God. And at that time, he said to them, beginning in verse 4 of Luke 10, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. And and there's obviously some things in there that need more explanation, but here's what I just want you to understand. In each place they went, they were to seek out that son of peace or that man of peace who would welcome them, who would host them, who would provide for them. But also, in context, we come to learn that that man of peace is someone who would become their advocate in in the community. He would open doors of opportunity for them to ministry, to proclaiming the gospel. And so for Paul and company on Malta, Publius, this man, this pagan man whom they had only just met, proved to be that kind of man to them, a man of peace. And in verse 8, we learn that Publius' father was sick with fevers, plural, and dysentery. In the ESV, it's singular fever, but in, uh, in the Greek, it's plural. And that's all that Luke tells us about the symptoms he was experiencing. It's probably impossible uh, for us to make an ac- accurate diagnosis of the specific nature of his illness based only on those two symptoms. But it's interesting to note that Luke says fevers, rather than fever in his description, which would seem to indicate that he experienced intermittent attacks. Whatever it was had laid him down so that he was bedridden. Um, And some have speculated, moderns have speculated, based on Luke's brief description, that his illness may have been known what is known as Malta fever, which uh, sounds to me like a milkshake. (laughs) But for a very long time, it was apparently common in a variety of Mediterranean locales, including Malta and Gibraltar, as well as other places, uh, this Malta fever. In 1887, a microorganism, which became labeled Micrococcus melitensis, uh, melitensis for Malta, its original name, the name at the time of Paul would have been Maliti, uh, Micrococcus melitensis was discovered, it was traced to, of all things, the milk of Maltese goats. And uh, so if you ever have an opportunity to visit Malta, don't drink any goat milk because apparently it's still active. A vaccine for its treatment was eventually developed, but if you were to contract Malta fever and it was left untreated, you'd likely be sick for a period of at least four months, um, and in some cases as long as two or three years, or in some cases it would just flat-out kill you. Uh, seems likely that in this small island community, the fact of Publius' father's illness, whatever that illness may have been, must have been well known. And when Paul became aware of it, we read that he visited him, he laid hands on him, and prayed for him, and he was healed. And throughout the New Testament, we're, in various places, we're commanded as believers to pray for one another. In James 5.16 is one of those places, and there we read this, Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And I don't know about you, but for my entire Christian life, uh, this verse has raised a lot of questions about the place of prayer uh, in my life, in our lives as individual Christ followers within the community of believers, uh, we know that we're called to pray for those who are sick. What we don't know and can't know on the front end is God's will regarding the healing of any given 
individual. Yet on occasions, uh, we can be made to feel by some like there's something defective about our prayers, like there's something defective even about our spirituality when those for whom we pray are not healed. You ever had that experience, had that feeling? What's wrong? You know, and there are some groups of believers who teach that prayer involves demanding of God what we want. Uh, There are groups of believers who think of prayer not as supplication, simply asking God for what we need, but as declaration. That is, if we simply declare something, speak something, as it were, into existence, like a healing, in the name of Jesus, that God is then obligated on the basis of our declaration to make it so. Especially, it seems, if we kind of gang up on God and get lots of people involved in that declaration, as if the will of God should be swayed by a majority, something approximating a majority. And something that they seem to forget is that in any situation, God is always in himself the majority. Amen? He is the majority. And I would submit to you that uh, it is often that mindset, that approach to prayer that can discourage us when God doesn't seem to agree with what we are requiring of him. When we pray for someone's healing, we ought to come humbly, the scriptures tell us. Not dictating, not declaring, not demanding, not claiming, as if our wisdom and our will are superior to his, but simply requesting, presenting our requests to God, submitting them to his perfect sovereign will, and trusting that in his infinite wisdom and love, he will act accordingly with his perfect will. Sometimes God says yes. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says wait. But he always acts sovereignly. He always acts acts wisely. He always acts in love. In my previous church, there was an elderly woman who, towards the end of her life, like many in her age group, was, was in and out of the hospital. Uh, and on a couple of those occasions, I went to visit her. I prayed for her healing. And on those couple of occasions, God in his providence saw fit to heal her. And from that point on, from among all of the pastors on our staff, and it was a relatively large staff, she superstitiously wanted only me to come and to pray when she was ill. It made me feel good, of course. It was affirming, but but I couldn't take any credit for her healing. Uh, We do the praying. God is the one who does the deciding. God is the one who does the healing. Our lives are in his hands. There, There came a day when my prayers for her healing were answered with the divine no, and God took her home. When the news that Publius' father had been miraculously healed, made its way across the island of Malta. We read here that everyone else who had diseases of any and every kind came and were cured. And I imagine even those who had sniffles, right? And it calls to mind, I think, the, the healing of that crippled man. Remember back, clear back in Acts 3? It seems like a lifetime ago when we were in Acts 3. He had been lame since birth. He sat each day at the beautiful gate of the temple. Peter and John saw him, looked at him, commanded him in the name of Jesus of Nazareth to rise up and walk. They did that in their unique apostolic authority to do so. And 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 he did. He, he stood up. He was miraculously healed. And he's like Tigger. You know, he's just boing, boing, boing all over the temple courts, praising God. Not praising Peter and John, but praising God who had healed him. And as a result, in subsequently, Paul preached the gospel. 5,000 men believed in Jesus. And in the parlance of the day, 5,000 men meant 5,000 households. 5,000 households believed in Jesus. Imagine that. Subsequently, in chapter 5 then, Luke says that what happened in, uh, in Jerusalem, or what happened on Malta, rather, happened also in Jerusalem, that multitudes, it says, when I don't know how many a multitude is, but it means large numbers of men and women who were sick, who were afflicted with unclean spirits, came from all over, and they too were miraculously healed 
in the name of Jesus. A couple of questions arise here in Luke's account of Paul's ministry on Malta that deserve our attention. Such a short little four verses, and yet it raises lots of questions. First, in the case of Publius' father, the word that Luke employs to indicate that he was healed points to a supernatural cause, what we would call divine healing, that it was God who clearly and directly healed. But in the case of the others who came, he says not that they were healed, but that they were cured. It's a different word. The word is Therapuo, from which we get our word therapy. So the question is, is is Luke using two different words to describe the same thing, that is, divine healing? Or, or, Or did he, as a physician himself, get involved in also applying natural medical solutions to cure them of their sicknesses? The verbiage certainly opens the door to that possibility. In either case, what we see as Christ followers, whether supernaturally or medically, serving as agents of healing in the name of Jesus. Secondly, it seems odd to me that Luke gives no indication that along with the healings, Paul proclaimed the gospel. There's just no indication of that in this text. The entire time they were on the island, three months. But, Given Paul's calling as an apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles, given his history, given his inclination, given his passion, we'd have to conclude that he must have. In every prior account of healing in the book of Acts, whether at the hands of Peter or Paul, there's an accompanying proclamation of the gospel that's followed, as we just saw, by mass conversions. It would be difficult to imagine that the same thing didn't happen here on Malta, I would expect that Paul would have been all over that. He had written to the believers in Rome, remember, he said, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Malta was certainly one of those places where the gospel had never previously been preached. No, absolutely no awareness of the gospel. Uh, Paul would surely have taken advantage of those three winter months to evangelize the entire population of the island, not to mention the Roman soldiers that were with him and the ship's crew and the prisoners. And not surprisingly, Luke adds in verse 10 that the Maltese honored us greatly, or more literally, and I like this, it said, with many honors honored us. And we don't know what those many honors may have been. What we can surmise is that there was clearly a deep sense of gratitude on their part for the ministry that Paul, Aristarchus, and Luke carried out there on the island so that when three months had elapsed and they prepared to sail again, this time for Italy, the islanders generously laid on board an abundance of provisions for the journey. A commentator named Homer Kent observed ironically that Luke's entire book has shown that virtually everyone was friendly to Paul except his own countrymen. Isn't that interesting? Virtually everyone was friendly to Paul except his own countrymen. And I, and I think our study through the book of Acts has, has shown us that. I came across this paragraph from the late Richard Longenecker's commentary on this passage in which he said, From what Luke tells us, it seems that Paul may have looked on his stay at Malta as a high point in his ministry, a time of blessing when God worked in marvelous ways, despite the shipwreck and his being still a prisoner. God seems through the experiences at Malta to have been refreshing Paul's spirit after the two relatively bleak years at Caesarea and the disastrous time at sea and preparing him for his witness in Rome. A bit of a respite uh, after a terrible storm and before his experiences, the experiences that lay ahead of him in Italy. You know, in the final verse of the final chapter of John's gospel, the apostle concludes with this final statement, John 21, 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did 
were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I think that's kind of an amazing statement. It tells us that there are lots of things that happened in the life and ministry of Jesus that aren't recorded. And as we approach the conclusion of the Acts of the Apostles, I imagine Luke could say something similar. So very much had taken place in the 30 or so years since Jesus was crucified, buried, raised from the dead by the power of God, and ascended into heaven, which is the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, clear back in Acts 1. So much had taken place since the Holy Spirit had been poured out on that first day of Pentecost after Jesus ascended into heaven, so that the church had taken root, the church had grown exponentially, the gospel had expanded across the Mediterranean region and beyond. And I was thinking of you, Leela, Leela Thomas. The Apostle Thomas went to India and, and evangelized India, and hence her last name, Thomas. Andrew went to Russia and what is now Ukraine, to that area. And when I was in Kiev many years ago, there's a massive statue of St. Andrew in front of St. Andrew's Cathedral, which is, if you're watching the news about the war in Ukraine, that gold-domed cathedral that's usually behind. They've chosen a spot so that that cathedral is behind them as, they're, as, the, as the anchors are delivering the news. So in that light, one of the questions we ought legitimately to ask is why Luke included some events and excluded others. For our purposes today, we ought to ask with regard to this little text in front of us why Luke even chose to include it. What did he want us to see? What did he want us to understand? One writer suggested that Luke included it in order to illustrate the continuing power of Paul's ministry despite his being in Malta as a prisoner destined for the hearing before Caesar. And I would agree that that's possible. But interestingly enough, apart from the healing of Publius' father and some of the other islanders, Luke really gives us no description of the rest of Paul's ministry on that island over a period of three months. And yet he spent an entire chapter describing the harrowing near-death voyage from Crete to Malta in a raging hurricane. If you'll allow it, let me suggest a possibility, and in doing so, to enlarge on an essential biblical doctrine that doesn't get a whole lot of press these days. You may recall that back in chapter 21, Paul had set his sights on getting to Jerusalem. And yet time and again, the Holy Spirit was telling Paul that what awaited him in Jerusalem was arrest, imprisonment, possible death. En route to Jerusalem, first in the city of Tyre and then in the city of Caesarea, his fellow Christians were warning him prophetically, remember that, of of danger in Jerusalem, urging him not to go. He went anyway. And having arrived in Jerusalem, some Jews from Asia saw Paul in the temple courts and stirred up the crowd against him so that he was attacked and he was nearly killed. He almost lost his life that day. He was rescued twice from that mob by soldiers under the command of the Roman tribune, the Roman commander of the the cohort in Jerusalem, who arrested him in order to protect him, arrested him in order to save his life. But he wanted to know why it was that the Jews were so opposed to him. It was his responsibility to know why. And so in an attempt to order, in an attempt to extract the truth from Paul, he ordered Paul to be flogged, which if you saw the Passion of the Christ, you saw a flogging of Jesus in that movie. It, it was a punishment that, that often resulted in death 
or in most cases, at least the disfigurement of the victim. But Paul again dodged a bullet by identifying himself as a Roman citizen. At the command of the Roman tribune, Paul testified before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, again, in an attempt on the part of the tribune to understand what it was that they had against Paul, what was the case against him. And on that case, the, the council became violent and, and, and almost killed Paul. And the, and the tribune, again, had to extract Paul in order to prevent him from being torn to pieces by them, Luke says. And that night, the Lord came to Paul, stood by him and said, Take courage, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Notice, it's not you might testify in Rome. It's not perhaps you will, but you must, which means you will. And the next day a plot was conceived by a group of Jews that they would not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. And Paul's nephew heard of the plot, reported it to the Roman tribune who ordered them that Paul be taken by night from Jerusalem down to Caesarea under heavily armed guard. And the Sanhedrin followed him there, the Jewish ruling council. They laid their case against Paul to the Roman governor, Felix. The end result of that hearing was that Paul was placed under house arrest in the praetorium at Caesarea and held there as a prisoner for a period of two years. A new governor, Festus, succeeded Felix during that time, and the Sanhedrin again were given opportunity to plead their case against Paul. And that gave opportunity for Paul to tell the story of his conversion and to proclaim the gospel first to Festus, the governor, then to Herod Agrippa. And sensing danger in all of that, Paul appealed to Caesar, which punched his ticket to where he'd always wanted to go, which was Rome. And he was en route to Rome that the ship on which Paul was being transported as a prisoner encountered that life-threatening storm. And, and again, in the midst of that hurricane at sea, when Luke says all hope of survival had been lost, an angel of the Lord was sent to Paul and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You can almost hear Paul saying, yeah, right. <laughs> We're about to go down. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must Stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Again, it wasn't, you might stand before Caesar, but you must, you will, you're going to survive, you're going to make it to Rome alive. Rome was Paul's desired destination, but he would go there in an undesired condition as a prisoner. And yet the recurring theme in the final full quarter of the book of Acts, verses chapters 21 to 28, we see God's providential preservation of Paul's life over and over and over again and the final fulfillment of, of God's declared purpose for Paul. Remember, go clear back to chapter 9, that Paul would carry his name before the Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, and the king and to, and before kings and before the children of Israel. And the biblical doctrine that's being put on display here is the doctrine of the providence of God. How many of you heard that expression, the providence of God? Some of you thought it was just a hospital, right? Well, what is the providence of God? I'd like to spend the rest of the time thinking about this doctrine because, because it's there. It, and and it's, it's everywhere in the scriptures, but we rarely talk about it. What is the providence of God? How are we to understand it? The most helpful definition I have ever seen is from an early 20th century Dutch Reformed theologian named Louis Burkhoff. And he said this, and he said it very succinctly, I think very clearly. He said, providence is that continued exercise of the divine energy, the, div the power of God, whereby the Creator, and these numbers are mine, preserves all his creatures. Number two is operative in all that comes to pass in the world. 
And number three, directs all things to their appointed end. Number one, preserves all his creatures. Number two, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world. And three, directs all things to their appointed end. Well, let's look at that real briefly. Preservation. He preserves all of his creatures. Psalm 145 verse 9, for example, says, The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Nehemiah 9.6, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. The writer of Hebrews chapter 1, 3 says, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Meaning that the world, the universe, continues in existence for one reason and one reason only, that God says so. And when God says otherwise, the universe will cease to exist. So that's preservation. Look look at operation. That God is operative in all that comes to pass in the world. Ephesians 1.11 captures this. In Him, that is Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, notice, all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. What about orchestration? That God directs all things to their appointed end. The two verses that precede the one I just read capture this the best. In Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, God is orchestrating all of history, every detail, weaving it together in a a meaningful, purposeful fabric at the at the close of which he will bring everything in heaven and and earth together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. In Philippians two, he's it's that moment when when he says uh, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the goal towards which God is orchestrating providentially all of history. Millard Erickson wrote a three-volume series titled Christian Theology that I have in my personal library, and he says this regarding the providence of God. While creation is God's originating work with respect to the universe, providence is his continuing relationship to it. By providence, we mean the continuing action of God by which he preserves in existence the creation which he has brought into being and guides it to his intended purposes for it. Creation is God's originating work. Providence is God's continuing relationship in all of its aspects to what he has created. And if the Bible speaks over and over again about God's continuing relationship to his creation is a direct contradiction of the theology of deism. How many of you have heard of deism? Some of you. How many of you had little wind-up toys when you were a kid that, or maybe you bought them for your grandkids, or maybe you just have some for your own amusement still? That, that you, little wind-up toys, you wind it up and it goes along and, and does something fun. Deism is the idea that God just kind of wound up the universe, set it in motion, and then moved on to other things. Watching, perhaps, dispassionately from a distance. Some of you may recall a song that was written by Julie Gold back in 1998, made popular by Bette Midler, 
that was titled From a Distance. And it's a fair representation of a deistic point of view. And the repeated refrain is, God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance. And the verses describe a world that that looks so perfect and looks so wonderfully healthy from a distance. As if, you know, astronauts looking from space back on the beautiful green and blue of earth. And the verses describe a God who is watching, but only from that distance, such that he cannot perceive the pain and the suffering and the ugliness that is happening on the earth and among human beings. One person commenting on his message said, when I listen to the song, I see God sitting on a couch eating bonbons saying, you're fine, stop bothering me. Another offered this summary. The song means that that God is unable or unwilling, unable or unwilling to concern himself with human suffering and that the world is only a good place if you view it blindly from a distance as God does. Deism. See, the God of deism is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the loving, all-wise, all-knowing creator, sustainer, and director of all that happens in the universe. He is the God who cared enough to send the very best, who sent his only son to take on human flesh, to experience human life, to experience humanity itself, to experience the worst that the world can dish out, and who died and rose again to redeem a lost humanity and a cursed creation, and who is able to work all things, even evil and wickedness, even sin, even rebellion, together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The etymology of the word providence itself is striking. It comes from the word provide or provide, which is a a compound of the Latin pro, meaning forward, also means on behalf of. And the Latin vide, meaning to see. So it would make sense to think that provide would mean simply to see forward or to foresee. And it, it does mean that in some places, But it doesn't ultimately. It means rather to supply what is needed, to give sustenance, to give support, so that the noun providence has come to mean God's activity of providing for or sustaining and governing the universe. That's an expression that we use often in kind of our slang. It's the phrase, I'll see to that. I'll see to that. And to see to something means to take care of, to, to provide for it. In other words, seeing something with a purpose is to make provision for what you see. Seeing to something is acting then on behalf of something or someone. It's providing. So providence is the act of God's seeing to, if you will, seeing to the universe. He says, I'll see to that. And theologically, there's a reason why seeing to means providing for. One of the very first stories in the Bible that illustrates God's providence is the story of God testing Abraham. Remember that that horrifying command that God gave to Abraham after having been childless for a terribly long period of time. And God finally gave him this son, Isaac. And God tested Abraham, Genesis 22 says, by commanding him to go to Moriah and there to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. Before traveling up the mountain, Isaac turns to his dad and says, Hey, Dad, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? As he's carrying the sticks on his back, not realizing that he's going to be laid on those sticks and and offered before God as an offering. And Abraham answered, 
God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God will provide. And when God ultimately stayed Abraham's hand from killing Isaac, he showed Abraham a ram that was caught in the thorns. And Genesis 22.14 says, Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh Yireh, or Jehovah Jireh, we say it more commonly. The Lord will, what? Provide. So whenever the word provide appears in that chapter, the Hebrew word behind it, interestingly, is to see. To provide is to see. Very simply, Abraham said to Isaac, God will see for himself the lamb. God will see for himself the lamb. And in verse 14, the Lord will see. Why does God's seeing in Hebrew mean that he will provide? It's this, that God never simply sees without acting. He is God. He is not a passive participant in a world that exists without his sustaining power and authority. I found this from John Piper this week. It's beautiful. He says, wherever God is looking, God is acting. If God perceives, he performs. If he inspects, he affects. In other words, there is a profound theological reason why providence does not merely mean foreknowledge, but rather the active sustenance and governance of the universe. When God sees, he sees too. His seeing is always with a view to doing. Where he patrols, he controls. Isn't that good? When I was a kid, there was a plaque on the wall in our home that read, God is the blessed controller of all things. What does all things mean? Well, it means all things. Nothing excluded. God is the blessed controller of all things. And I want to give you, and this is where I really want to make sure you take notes today, if, if you want to, ten points that give us an outline, a biblical outline, of the extent of God's providential control. And I'm going to give you scripture references that correspond with each of them. I'm not going to read all of the scriptures, but uh, they'll be on the screen. The references will be on the screen, and you, you can write those down and look them up as you have time. Number one, God's providential care extends over the entire universe at large. Daniel 4, 34 to 35. Um, I am going to read this. You, you might remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar, the king, Old Testament. And, and there was a period in his time when, where he rebelled against God and, and God got involved and, and he basically um, took away from Nebuchadnezzar his um, reasoned mind. And so we'd see him out on the lawn, not mowing it, but eating it uh, like an animal. But then God restored his mind. And in the aftermath, here's what Nebuchadnezzar concluded. He said, God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. See that both heaven and earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Perfectly sovereign, perfectly providential over the entire universe. Number two, God's providential care extends over the entire physical world. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Number three, God's providential care extends over the affairs of the nations. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight: For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. Kingship belongs to the Lord. You wonder why certain people get elected to certain offices? Because God wills it so. Because he's orchestrating history to an appointed end. Number three, or number four, rather. God providentially presides over the time of our birth, the place of our birth, the nature of our birth, and our lot in life. One of the places that speaks to that is Psalm 139, 13 through 16. 
Number five, God's providence extends over all our outward successes and failures. Psalm 75, 6 and 7, For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Number six, His providence extends to that which we would be tempted to say is seemingly accidental or insignificant, inconsequential. Proverbs 16, 33. And again, a reminder that that sometimes... Life seems chaotic. History seems chaotic. And yet there is a purpose being worked out through it. Number seven, his providence extends to the protection of the righteous. Psalm 121. We sang it this morning. I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord or literally my help, the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And he goes on in that chapter to say, because he is my help, because my help is the Lord. I, there's nothing I fear. There's nothing I fear. I can live courageously. Number eight, his providence covers the supply, the provision of all the needs of God's people. Philippians 4.19, my God, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Number nine, his providence extends to providing answers to our prayers. Again, sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says wait. But in Psalm 65 too, God is characterized as, O you who hear prayer. God hears our prayers. Matthew 7, 7 and 8, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So keep on asking, keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Number 10, his providence extends to the exposure and the punishment of the wicked. Isaiah thirteen eleven. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Again, not karma, but a personal providential God. Well, let's come back to Burkhoff's de- definition for a moment and see how it applies to Paul's experiences in the latter quarter of this book of the Acts of the Apostles. Again, providence is that continued exercise of the divine energy whereby the Creator, number one, preserves all his creatures, number two, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world, and number three, directs all things to their appointed end. Preservation. God preserved Paul, didn't he? Through, through what we would have to call, uh, a lot of opposition and, and, and probably demonic intervention, probably demonic disruption. Satan was at work to destroy Paul to take his life. God preserved him. Operation. But God wouldn't allow Satan to disrupt. God wouldn't allow Satan to intervene. God wouldn't allow Satan to take Paul out. God himself intervened to protect Paul from every attack because God had set an appointment for Paul in Rome and he was not about to let Paul miss it. He works everything according to the counsel of his will. God had a a purpose. He had a plan for Paul that he was going to carry out no matter what. You know, Paul wrote in Philippians to the the believers in Philippi, chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And I remember a song that was written of that verse. It was the actual verse. But the phrase, the repeated phrase, Phrase was, he will be faithful to complete it. And, that, and, that, and that's, that's implicit to the text. God will be faithful to complete the work he began in you unto the day of Christ Jesus. And you might say, man, I'm just stumbling all over the place. And, and yep, yep, I'd be right there with you. Just stumbling all over the place. And yet, God is working out his purpose and he sees it from his side. He sees it eternally. He sees the plan and the purpose that he has for your life. He sees the days that were appointed for you. And and he will not 
take you out until he has completed the purpose that he has for your life. I hope that's encouraging to you. Orchestration. We see God firmly directing Paul's steps to his final destination. In spite of whatever potential misgivings Paul may have had, whatever discouragement he may have experienced from the enemy, and I don't think he was bulletproof in that regard. I'm sure that Paul had times of deep discouragement. In fact, I know he did. And as we saw last week, in the midst of a life-threatening storm, when everyone else had given up hope, Paul became an agent of hope because of his confidence in the promise and power of God. So let's wrap this up. And as we do that, I just want to talk about how you can find peace in the providence of God. Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. You are going to experience adversity. You're going to experience trouble. But I have overcome not just your circumstances. I have overcome the world. Most of us will have seasons in our lives when we can't make sense of our circumstances. We feel out of control. We'll experience losses of health, of finances, friendships, family. And seasons like these can lead many of us to despair. And we may be tempted in those times to question whether God actually is in control, whether He actually sees, whether He's paying any attention, if He really cares. So the question is, how can we instead find rest in the, in the confidence that we serve a God who controls all things, who will work all things together for good in accordance with His will, a God who loves us, who is working out a plan for our individual lives. The world looks to karma. The world looks to luck and, and self-effort. And you and I can choose instead to place our trust and our hope in the providence of a sovereign, loving, all-wise, all-knowing God. Go with me to Luke chapter 12, 22 to 34. Familiar passage, and we're going to end with this. He, and he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. See, this famous is, or this, this famous, this passage is famous for the ways that it addresses the anxieties and the fears of our daily lives. In fact, the word anxious appears three times. The word worries appears at the very center of the text, and there's an acknowledgement that life in this broken world can induce a variety of fears in us. The Bible doesn't assume that we'll never have troubles. It doesn't assume that we'll never have cause for worry. It tells us rather how we should respond to it when it comes. And notice the sources of anxiety Jesus mentions. Anxiety over our physical needs. Food, 
drink, clothing, anxiety over our lifespan, the fear of death, fear of growing old, anxiety over a host of other things that we can't even begin to control. In verse 22, Jesus commands his disciples to refuse to give in to anxiety, to refuse that. In verse 29, he commands them to refuse to worry. How are we to do that in a worrisome, anxiety-inducing world? My wife Marcy and I have had a fair amount of stress this past week in regard to a project we're doing in our home. And, and Marcy wisely said the other day, "Just these are first-world problems. <laughs> these are first-world problems. Remember where we are, who we are, how we are. Jesus challenges us, first of all, to engage our minds, to get mentally engaged. He, twice he calls us to mental consideration. First, of God's provision of food for the birds of the air. And second, of the splendor with which he's clothed the grasses and the lilies of the field. And next, he calls them to consider their extreme value to God. This is a great verse for PETA, I think, you know, of how much more value are you, value are you than birds. <laughs> how much more will he clothe you? And third, he reminds us to remember who God is. Twice he calls God your father. It's a great text for Father's Day. Your father. And because the sovereign Creator God is your heavenly Father. Jesus charges you not to mimic the anxiety of those in the world who don't have a heavenly Father, who cares for them, who provides for them. The children of the heavenly Father are to refuse to give in to anxiety and worry. Not that we won't be prone to it, but we have a choice to make in response to it. But we're instead to activate our faith in his providential care. In 1859, a, a woman named Elizabeth Cheney, not the Liz Cheney we know from politics, Elizabeth Cheney penned this little poem. You may be familiar with it. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. When our children were young and they experienced times of fear, we'd draw them in and we'd sing a little song that was based on Psalm 56.3. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. I will trust in you. I will trust in you. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. You know, the root of the word worry uh, means to be divided. It means to be distracted. Worry can lead to panic. can lead to emotional paralysis. It can lead to physical and mental illness. It can lead to a breakdown of our spiritual vitality. And that's not God's plan. That's not his purpose for his people. He calls us away from a preoccupation with the immediate and the temporal to gain an eternal perspective and to faith in the providential care of our loving Heavenly Father. The conclusion of that passage in Luke says this, Jesus still speaking, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. You, you can do without those things. I gotcha. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this great passage of Scripture that reminds us of your providential care for Paul and calls us to trust in your providential care for us, children of the Heavenly Father. 
We thank you that we have a Father in heaven who loves us, who provides everything for us, who sees everything about us, who knows us perfectly, loves us intimately, loves us fully, and will one day open the doors of heaven to call us home. And we look forward to that day. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.